This is episode number seven of Presentable, and I'm Jeff Veen, your host. Today on the program is Stanley Wood. He's the design director at Spotify, and we're going to talk about how design teams scale at a rapidly growing company. We get into style guides, design systems, and the cultural change that needs to happen to keep a product consistent. So let's get right to it. You were just out west in California? Yeah, I was in the States for six weeks, actually. A bit of uh, work and a bit of pleasure. So yeah, it was nice. Nice. What'd you see? Uh, Well, I started off in New York, and then I traveled down by train to uh, Charleston, which was lovely. Um, very nice city. I really like that place. Uh, had lots of uh, like fried chicken and grits and stuff like that. It's good. <laughs> and, uh, you did it right. That's good. Yeah, I did it good. Yeah, um, my stomach says so. Uh, then I went down to Savannah and then carried on down. Saw some family in Florida, and then we headed to the desert. Went to uh, to Palm Springs and Joshua Tree, which was lovely. Oh very yeah, good. I've spent some time there too, cycling and hiking and stuff out in the desert. I just it's uh, yeah. it's a remarkable landscape, isn't it? Just the sort of the the beauty of the I don't know emptiness, really. Yeah, it is it is beautiful. We found out though that we were going in the off season. It was like ridiculously hot. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, I, yeah. I understand Fahrenheit now. It's like a hundred and over a hundred Fahrenheit, something crazy. They had these uh, what they called hot dog specials at the at the hotels, you know. So, uh, but despite all of that, it was lovely. Um, like you said, yeah, like amazing nature. And the, I mean, it's a really cool place. Uh, Palm Springs is really cool. Uh, and then we had this Airbnb, yeah, just outside the park. And yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. Oh, that really sounds nice. fantastic. And now you're back in Stockholm. Yes, I got back last week, got through the jet lag more or less. Um, so yeah, more or less uh, normal again. Now Spotify uh, is, is based there, was founded in Stockholm, is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, Daniel and uh, and Martin are both from from Stockholm. That's uh, yeah, that's interesting. I was over there for a conference a few months ago now, and stopped by the Spotify offices and. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, hung out with some of the design team and Rochelle and and oh, all of that. Cool. Yeah, was, first of all, very very cool offices. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, they were dynamic and and vibrant, but also looked like a place where a whole pile of work was getting done. I always like to see where people are collaborating and and you know the artifacts laying around and stuff like that always super cool yeah no it's true it's lovely to peek backstage yeah totally um you know the team was cool too and it was interesting how um how well they blended this sort of because you've got some design offices in new york as well and stuff like that right so you've got designers kind of spread out around that need to to collaborate and stuff like that exactly yeah and the, the team themselves are pretty much an international mix so even in the Stockholm office, everyone, I mean, I think we've got nationalities from everywhere, uh, within Europe, in Asia, and from the States, all over. Um, so that's also very interesting and helpful for designing an international product. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things, I don't know if this is cliche or not, but one of the things that I noticed in Stockholm, like just as a city, is that mm-hmm. the, not just the aesthetic, which was phenomenal and beautiful, but the consistency of it all the way through yeah. this, I mean, like the the bus stops and the mailboxes and just like everything was was beautiful and the yeah. and and seemingly like that level of detail and um and attention to design well, yeah. was part of the culture of the city yeah i think well one of the things that stockholm has it's a little similar uh what i noticed also in uh, in, in japan a little bit it's very much like a group mindset so that means there's a uh, an idea that if you can share lots of things and it's for the 
for the better of all. So it's obviously nicer if you walk down a street and everything conforms in some way. Uh, and I think if you're a designer, you you definitely appreciate that. Um, so yeah, I, I think you, I think I picked up on that pretty early too. I think it's yeah, it's a very nice ambience to walk around the sea, and then um, it blends nicely up into the to the uh, the countryside that's not too far from the centre, and the water that's all around the different islands. Something that keeps me here. I like it very much. How long have you been there? I've been here now just over four years, actually. It's a okay. long time. Did for... you move there to to work for Spotify? Is that how you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I um I was in Spain. Uh, I was working in Madrid, um, a startup there, and uh, so yeah, quite different. Uh, if you've if you've been there, different kind of culture and, yeah. and weather and everything. Uh, I, I imagine yeah. you you go to bed a little earlier now than you did when you lived yeah, in Spain. Yeah, that takes. <laughs> well, actually, uh, my wife is uh, is from Barcelona, so. We have still haven't quite adapted our eating habits to to the Swedish timetable, so we're eating at some like at ten o'clock even, you know. So that that breaks things up. So uh, so four years at Spotify is a long time for uh, for that company and and just you know in general working on a product. How's that been going? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. I think so for me personally, since uh, since I was since I was a kid, I've been moving around every couple of years. So the idea of staying anywhere is kind of terrifying. Um, but then when I, I arrived into uh, Sweden and to Spotify just as I turned 30, so I don't know if that was a key moment or something. Um, so I think I think for me, what's Spotify has been changing a lot. I think when I transitioned, I'd come from a startup and then Spotify was kind of the same size as where I'd left and then it was quickly growing. So it was very interesting to watch that growth because uh, I've never seen, been in a, in a company of this the size it is now. Um, and seeing all of the challenges, so that kept things definitely interesting, and has uh, has continued to do you know provide challenges and like okay, how do you work this out? Um, so it never felt like it became a routine or repetitive or anything like that. And I think um, all the challenges have been evolving for the for the company and the product as well as the landscape of music has changed. You know, first uh, just having this kind of technology, this uh, ability to to um, uh, you know, share music and access it in this way in this sort of, you know, search and play model and then see that quickly become a common model. Everybody is streaming and then, okay, now what do we do? You know, how do we evolve that to be something even more relevant and interesting for for uh, for our users um, as well as a platform for creators to, to take advantage of? So that's, so it feels like it's evolved. Um, uh, it hasn't really gotten, you know, boring or anything like that so that's no. definitely kept me kept me interesting yeah i can't imagine it get getting particularly boring um but uh especially like as you say is this incredibly i don't know evolving or, or even just shifting out from under you all the time the just the way people are are um their relationship to music how that's changing the, the how the industry is changing how the business models behind it are changing i imagine four years ago the competitors were all very different than they are today and things like that. exactly yeah yeah, it was much more, yeah, it was a different range. Um, and yeah, that's evolved. I would probably say that for me personally, even those things all apply. So my first year here was, um, I came and I was working on a, like a vision project. So uh, myself and another designer, we, you know, you saw all of the problems that we, we recognized that, okay, well, we can, we can, we can improve here. Let's completely rethink the product from the scratch. So we, uh, took over and it was in the old office not the one that you visited but like a smaller one that we had before that and uh, found a cupboard that nobody was using uh we, uh we took that over and we stuck a label and called it a design lab and we stayed there for about 12 months uh <laughs> trying to imagine you know like oh what could spotify 
uh, could be. So that was that was very interesting. But the kind of the crux of what I learned through that was actually, even though this is a at the moment in time where you know, we're disrupting a lot of uh, things with with music, etc. But a lot of the challenges Spotify has actually faced uh, from from a design point of view has actually been a lot more backstage. How do you bring design into the DNA and how do you resolve that? So that project actually, even though we uh, I think influenced a lot of things that happened in the future roadmaps, it never really saw the light of day as we'd envisioned it, uh, largely because we struggled to integrate it back in um, to the to the organization and that should where design was at that time. And so from that moment, it was like spending more and more time figuring that out. And that's been sort of the challenge that has kept me uh, very interested in how does design integrate? How do you evolve it? How do you create practices and tools and processes that work uh, with, with tech and product and, and across all the different things we're doing there? Yeah, totally. So what kind of things were you working on in this design lab? Was it more just sort of far-reaching, like pure innovative type directions and things like that? We were trying to do a couple of things. One, we were trying to introduce a, a user-centered design methodology. So uh, doing a lot of deep insights with user research um, and marketing inputs, evolving those through you know conceptual models and prototypes and uh, user testing those, um, having different kinds of hypotheses, you know, very high level, and then evolving those over time, demonstrating them to our senior stakeholders and getting feedback there and, right. and tweaking as we moved on. Um, so it was a it was a fun, I mean it was a really uh, fun project, uh, but uh, at the end. It, it was it was a real sort of insight for me actually that you know all of the all of the benefits that we got from being separate that we could have fresh thinking and not be held back by any sort of you know internal baggage of any kind came at a large cost at the end i mean definitely people were excited and uh, engaged to see you know what we were working on but at the same time the organization is moving forward and uh, then you need to you sort of falling behind in terms of context and then you know you create this gap that's very difficult to bridge if you stay apart for too long. So I think my main learning from that was it's better to design inside the box, design within the organization and not be too far out. Kind of changed my mind a lot about you know, design labs and being too, not being working with uh, to integrate with the rest of the org. Yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of precedent for that. I mean, it's always very, very enticing, right? This like we're gonna yeah. be this under the radar black ops sort of. We, we get to go experiment with stuff, and then yeah. whatever we discover, we'll we'll bring it back in and and try to integrate it. But it's also dangerous for I think two things because the other the other challenge is all of the other designers. Well, oh, they're gonna fix everything, <laughs> right? Oh, we don't need to worry anymore because that team that you know. Uh, the project we was called forward that they're going to solve, you know, solve all of that stuff. So that's also dangerous because you're not fixing things as they're coming up. I'm not saying that was the case, but you can imagine somewhere in your brain, you're like, oh, okay, I don't need to worry about this. Maybe yet, yeah, it'll get fixed eventually. You see that with companies all the time. I mean, I think the quintessential example is Xerox Park, right? You take a handful of people out of the organization and say, like, go invent the future. Yeah, and and Xerox has historically and famously never really been able to bring like synthesize that back into their product line or, or core technologies and, and things like that. Yeah, that's so true. That it reminds me of the um what's that story I must sure remember. You know Charles Eames, you know, he designed that the first prototype of the chair with somebody else. And then his big learning was you've got to always design with the constraints from the beginning. Yeah. And I think largely from from this you know, from that standpoint that I went through at Spotify, the constraint was figuring out how this is going to work in the organization. Is this going to be able to get built? Um, what other partnerships do we have with other companies? Uh, what is our roadmap and what promises have we made? Technically, is any of this doable? Otherwise, you just seem very naive and it's you know a waste of time. So I think 
actually beginning with those constraints that was sort of a was another thing that i wish yeah you'd known earlier on that's good that's kind of um, what i wanted to talk about today is this idea of that 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 balance between innovation and constraints really and uh in in particular just scaling good design at an organization as an org especially organizations that grow as fast as the one you're at so you said you were there there four years ago what what's the what's the delta from when you were there to to now, just in terms of people, like how big is Spotify and how was how big was it then? I can start with the designers because uh, I can't remember actually on the engineering. It was definitely like grown massively. Yeah. Uh, from design though, we were about six designers. Hmm. Uh, we're over sixty-five, maybe now. Wow. I think. Yeah. So it's it's grown a lot. Um, it was primarily in. Stockholm and uh, we just started the New York office just before I'd arrived so I think we had one or two designers then and now we have uh, Stockholm, Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden, um, London, New York still and uh, San Francisco so there and, and New York and Stockholm are kind of the main offices um, in terms of like uh, headquarters between the those two continents um, but yeah it's grown it's grown a lot actually um, and just seeing the kind of new challenges that to rise even within those numbers you know i think you get to about 20 and you start to see new pain points mm -hmm. it's almost like um if i just focus on the on the stockholm office there was a few things that we used to run so we'd have like a breakfast club in the on the, on the monday mornings you know we'd have everybody start the day and we'd just go do a round table and eat just with all of the design team uh that were there but then you quickly as you go past 20 it becomes very difficult to get you know get around everybody uh, a reasonable time before they you know get to your desk it's almost as like you're in a town and then you become in a city you know right. you don't know everybody's names i mean you know them but it's like a different kind of relationship it's just just the challenges with the, the number of people that you have uh, so it's been very interesting to to witness that growth. Actually, that's very new. For, that was very new for me. I remember. Uh, yeah, I've been at a at a number of companies that have gone through that rapid growth as well. I was at Wired Magazine when it was very early, and I remember this yeah. moment where I got an email from somebody saying, "Like, hey, this has been great. I'm moving on to my next opportunity. It's been lovely to work with all of you." And this is mm. somebody who's leaving the company that I had never met. <laughs> <laughs> and that to wow. me was this like, like, oh, okay, we're really big now. That not only are there people I don't know, but there are people that have been here and done a whole stint of time, and now they're they're moving on to their next thing. And I never once met them. Yeah, that's that's crazy. How how big was that team? Well, I mean, we start like when I started there, the especially on the digital side of Wired Magazine, doing all the websites and and whatnot. Um, we were just uh, I think we we're eight or ten people, uh, and then right. we, and and then again, just like divorced from the the uh, print side of the magazine, we got to be two hundred and fifty people just working on digital stuff. So, um, and that's not just design, of course. That's everything: ed editors and ad sales yeah. and things like that. And I think I'm pretty sure the person who was leaving was in ad sales. So you know, not a lot of day to day interaction with that team and and stuff. Right. But, but still, that that's an idea. I mean, there's so much psychology around like the size of tribes and Dunbar's number around how many social connections can you keep in your head at once and and stuff like that and and i always find that interesting especially now you know i spend a lot of my time working with startups and seeing like these watershed numbers right when a, when a company becomes what well, well, even when they they go from just a couple of founders into five or six people a big shift has yeah. to happen like because you don't share the same part of your brain with those five or six people that you do that you do with your co-founder but then you hit 20 people and the way that you all once sat around one table and could communicate things by saying it out loud, like that changes. Yeah. Right? And on and on it goes. I know there's this 
this inflection point for companies as they, uh, at least the startups that, that we deal with, that they get to, they're sort of a round, um, you know, the second or maybe third round of funding, 40, 50, 60 people in, in that area where the founders suddenly realize they can't really be the head of product and keep the whole product mm. like roadmap and features and that level of detail in their heads anymore because their job has become the company and not the product. Yeah. And so they have to do this, um, this, this really difficult sort of trust and handoff to someone either that they have been cultivating inside the organization or starting to look for this. What is a head of product or maybe what is a head of design? And No, it's just so true, yeah. It's just interesting to see these inflection points and the tools you need to help support that. Tools and process, of course, sort of intermingled. And that's that feels like something that you've been... You wrote this Medium post about scaling design at Spotify and some of the work you did around systems and, and process and organization. It seems like that's something you've been thinking about quite a bit lately. <laughs> yeah, I thought about it a lot, actually. Um, it's funny, it reminded me, uh, the, the place I was working at before Spotify was actually a social network, and I'd been studying actually all of these uh, these numbers, and I'd forgotten about it. Yeah, like the 150, the average number of people that you invite to a, like a wedding or something, and like 90 yeah. people or something. Yeah, I'd forgotten. Yeah, but it's so true, actually. Um, yeah, I, so yeah, thinking a lot about uh, culture, I'd say, was probably the biggest thing, reading about that and trying to understand, you know, when you're trying to... Uh, extend or insert yourself as a as a design function, say, into an existing culture. So looking into that and reading things like I think it was was it twelve the first twelve or thirteen people of a company define the culture, uh, or at least the initial culture and how that how that changes. And then you know reading and talking to other designers and you know if they were had CEOs who were uh, uh, senior people that start or design heavy in the beginning how that would shape the organization over time in one sense and if you didn't have that at the beginning the work that you would need to do to to calibrate that so that's that was very that's very interesting to think about um yeah, that's. I think that's the first thing that we sort of uh, you start to notice when. So, what was the context for you sort of focusing on this? I, I, I would imagine the team is growing, like the company is growing, and then the design team as well. They, they they might start to feel a little disconnected. You might start to see it in the product or inconsistencies that you know the kind of stuff that I think drive any designer crazy, regardless of the size of the company. It's yeah. just like how do we present a user experience here that feels um, considered and consistent all the way through. Uh, a tremendously difficult thing to achieve and something that I think every company, every product team struggles with, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a lot of trial and error, I suppose. I think the first thing that I was doing, which was completely wrong, but I'm sure others have done the same, is, uh, hey, uh, design is really important. Uh, I actually bought books, you know, like my favorite design books, and uh, would hand them over and say, you've got to read this, you know, like, this is important, please... Um, you know, please read this and realize how uh, how much of a priority this should be, and how you should think the same way I do. And, you know yeah. that typical thing uh, that you do, uh, which doesn't work uh, <laughs> at all. Um, I think the thing that I learned there is uh, is you've got to um, you've got to make it easier uh, to um, to make design or consistency or you know an experience that feels like one person helped uh, craft it uh, yeah. the easiest thing to deliver, not. Like it's a priority that you need to fight for every year or something. So typically that starts with technology. So, you know, what we ended up doing, sort of jumping to where we are now, was, uh, you know, having, you know, once we uh, were able to 
articulate the you know the mission and get this uh, funded etc was to have engineers who could focus on the front end um, and deliver not only expressing what was in our guidelines sort of these core building blocks the you know the styles and the components and so on so that all the other engineers who were focused on other uh, say features etc could reuse them to make their life easier so that's one way that it, it was easier uh, to achieve a consistent uh, design language but that also that we can start to work on it and make that change an evolution of the language really easy and cheap so that if we want to change the the colors or the typeface or change the way the buttons are structured across all of our different platforms or on one particular platform um, over time then that's really easy to do um, and we can learn over that as well it's not just not to just reflect the brand but what if we want to um, explore the emotional aspects uh, one of the kind of core beliefs we have in this uh, glue team that's focusing as a systems team that's centralized at Spotify uh, that I look after is um, is the emotive aspect that uh, emotion that the users often uh, make decisions uh, not logically but emotionally and so looking into that what can we do to um, encourage a user to do uh, I don't know hit that button or have a more positive uh, reaction to uh, I don't know offlining music or something, so that we can actually explore those things as well if we can standardize in some way. This week's episode of Presentable is brought to you by FreshBooks. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a really good chance that you're a designer, and that means you probably have done some freelance work. I have myself, and I'll tell you what, I always loved doing the work, and I really enjoyed getting paid, but it was that bit in the middle that drove me crazy, having to send out invoices to my clients, get them to pay me, follow up when they didn't. It was a nightmare. Well, FreshBooks are on a mission to help small business owners save time and avoid stress that comes from running their businesses. And that all starts with pain-free invoicing. FreshBooks has created a super intuitive tool that makes creating and sending invoices totally simple. It takes just 30 seconds to create and send an invoice, and you can add your company logo for that extra professionalism for the way you want your invoices to look. FreshBooks will give your clients tons of ways to pay you. They allow you to receive payments by credit card and integrate with services like PayPal, and this can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. In fact, FreshBook customers get paid up to five times faster on average. And this part is really great that you can see whether or not your client has looked at the invoice. So no more excuses, no lost invoice, and you can set up an automatic late payment reminder as well. So they just keep getting the email saying, hey, my invoice, how about it? And that's just the invoicing. FreshBooks has a lot of other features to help you keep organized. You can easily keep track of your expenses. And if you're in the US, you can automatically import your bank transactions for easy reconciliation. They have great reports. You can easily see who owes you what. Tons of third-party integrations. They do time tracking. They have amazing customer support. Getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple. You don't really have to be a numbers person at all. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial to listeners of this show. No credit card required. To claim your 30 days of unrestricted use, go to freshbooks.com slash presentable. That's freshbooks.com slash presentable. And when you sign up, please enter presentable in the how you heard about us section so FreshBooks knows you came from this show. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for sponsoring Presentable and Relay FM. Where do you think this this fragmentation comes from? Is it is it literally just coordination among a bunch of people, or is there something a little deeper to that? I, I wonder about this myself because 
I mean, I've been involved in many projects like this. I, I, I did work on uh, stuff like this for Google on their, on their web apps. Yeah. Um, we did a whole bunch of stuff like this at Adobe. And what I find is there's generally very little resistance to the idea of a style guide or of consistency, like everybody across the board agrees. And I mean that in, in most disciplines as well. Like you talk to the business executives and like, well, that sounds uh, much more economical for you to do it that way. Right. Yeah. Talk to engineers who of course they love consistency, right? That makes sense. It's a system. We like systems that, that work and function yeah. that way and designers as well. And then every single, in every instance, in every conversation, they, they would say, yep, that sounds great. Although, you know, in our case we have this, there's a slightly different context. I don't think, that it really and every yeah. single time so you end up with like great we have a style guide of course we need a little bit of more flexibility every team doing that then there's no consistency whatsoever and i wonder where that like that it almost feels like this base emotion human human emotional i don't know where it comes from but the inconsistency is the one consistent thing i found across large teams yeah 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 it's 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 a lot of things um at the very beginning, I would say that typically, you know, when you arrive in a, in a company, um, in, in my experience, designs often uh, started a little later than the others. Um, it's typically been more of a support function right. that was added on. Um, so then there's a lot of work, you know, to change some of the processes, you know, articulate what design is. I know that's taken me a lot of effort. And I know what I've experienced, at least designers really struggle to explain what design is because it's many different things. Um, so you've got to articulate it in a certain way. And yeah. specifically this problem, you know, it's finding a way to actually not, like I did my first year, focusing on the actual product. Like, okay, well, if we just do these designs, that will solve everything because that won't have any lasting impact. You know, you'll do that redesign and then it will fall apart again afterwards. So it's actually really turning your attention to the organization and treat the company or the, the product organization as the design problem. Uh, you know, start backstage. You know, how, what do we need to do here to create the right habits? You know, um, you know, habits are hard to change. It's hard to change your own habits. You know, start going running or something. Uh, remember to put the toilet seat down. These kinds of things. Um, right. So if you're trying to change the organization's habits overall so that they <laughs> follow a consistent method, um, including designers. You know, designers love to redesign. Happens all. Yeah, you know, we're all we're very guilty of that. Would probably make this very challenging. So you, it's focusing on the organization, creating certain. Uh, checkpoints and processes and making it easier to to shape this language and and you know it's not about consistency and then nobody can evolve you know it should be a living language you're just making it easier that as you have more and more people to uh, collaborate and align with you have tools in place uh, that will make sure that the user experience is a really great experience uh, and not suffer uh, because you're or you're not talking enough it is uh, so you started i guess uh culturally and with a process that ended up then in a set of artifacts. Yeah, so I mean, so the first thing was how do we sell it? So um, basically, you know, it was on a whiteboard just articulating, to, you know, what was what was the problem? Really trying to sell the problem, not uh, not keep selling the solution. Like we need this, but not. But what's what's really wrong then? So making sure that it was understood. Look, look, here's a picture of where things are. Um, this will continue to happen because you know there's no there's no support system, etc. Um, and so if we have this model, then we can achieve that. So it was spending a lot of time really being clear about that. And then actually you get uh, other people's help. Uh, so, for example, engineering leadership to say, actually, you know, if you 
uh, also have uh, strong engineering partnership on this, it will be even better because of this, you know, because often we have these systems team um, and it's just design. And that's that's getting back to your, your sort of earlier statement of making the right thing to do the easy thing to do. Yeah, right? exactly. Rather than like sending around a PDF of style guidelines and saying, here, follow this. Yeah. Turning it into functioning code that actually saves time for engineers. Yeah, it makes a, I mean, it's, it's, it's so important. Um, and it's also recognizing that if the design language that you have is, is fragmented, the most likely the code behind it is equally fragmented. You know, so you've got to make, you got to change the habits of a lot of different people, not just uh, just on the design side. Um, so once we we uh, we communicate that, uh, we put some guidelines in place. So articulating those and structuring them, um, and also I think a lot of education to you know to designers too. Not every you know, like thinking about how do you think about the uh, language as a system of uh, that evolves. You know, with sort of the foundation of how in our case Spotify looks and moves and sounds and how you bring all of that together in a structure that works across different platforms um, in a navigation that you know depends on OSs, et cetera, and then forms into components and patterns. And just showing the evolution, you know, very much this atomic system or the, uh, was it Christopher Alexander's pattern, you know, describing yeah, yeah. in a way that is modular. And I think that modular part is really key um, because, you know, lots of different designers working on different kinds of problems are going to reuse certain parts for different kinds of challenges um, or, or briefs. And if it's modular, then it's easy to reuse. But also, um, if they need to have a, a, an alternative, then you can have that without it being like massively different in some way or other. Um, so spending time on those guidelines and, and coming up with this this sort of system um, methodology, which we didn't have in place before, uh, that was sort of the, the initial part that we did within that team. Then again, trying to make it easier, not just in code, but also having like a sketch file or an illustrator file where, right. you know, immediately you can just start your work. So that's easier, right? I can, I've got, you know, I've got time, I've got to do something, I've got to go for lunch. Well, if I have this, I'll use it. So um, again, that's, that's made a, a massive, um, uh, made habits, it made it easier to follow sort of these good habits that we were trying to encourage. And then, um, and then you figure out other things as, you know, it's not all, sort of uh, you're learning along uh, I think I mentioned it in this this article you know then we found that what if I have a new component that I want to do now what do I do um, and watching out for this idea that just because there's a team in, in our case who uh, uh, are maintaining and helping to evolve this language that they're not the only ones who can uh, can add and change stuff that you want it to feel like everybody's language um, you're trying to encourage people who may be you know working on very independent problems to come together and look at it as one experience that we ship you know spotify is for everybody you know it's not just for that specific feature i may work for um and so then we came up with forums and workshops etc to uh to try and resolve that problems uh, that problem too and what is the makeup of the of the teams that are working on this like when you say workshops and forums and stuff like that is it is it d designers working with engineers or is this designers kind of trying to solve the problem and then bring it back to their teams that they're the product teams are working on so um well the way that the design is organized at Spotify. We have, um, so we have kind of, we have designers who work on say like a growth or revenue uh, type of problem. And then you have another that works maybe on the consumer side of things. So around, I don't know, say search or um, the player or something like that. And they may have moments where they're working on something that could be kind of similar, let's say like a banner or something. Uh, but they might work on that component independently. They might start with the guidelines, but then they need to evolve it for their particular need. So what we, what we try to do is we have this guild uh, once a week 
and we bring a design representative from those different areas and just to like um, encourage conversation. So they're like, oh, wow, you're also coming up with this. So let's have a workshop that we would help um, facilitate so that we can come up with one component and not many. So it's often, you know, design's tools, unlike engineering, are pretty, pretty primitive at the moment. Our best tools are just talking. Um, however mm. clever, you know, uh, um, we've got lots of things like Envision and Slack, et cetera, which are wonderful, but still in the end you need to talk. And so these, these forums that we have are really key. Um, so that's just really getting design aligned before, you know, different teams of developers build components. And then there's like, oh, wow, we invested all this time and we've even tested it now. And this one's performed this little change better than the one that you're saying is the, you know, the, uh, the global pattern. We don't want to do that, you know, so that causes tension later on. It's better to solve it in the beginning. Let me go back to a word you used while you're describing that, which was guild. Uh, I remember it was a few years ago now. There was a, uh, a couple of people at Spotify wrote up a big description of the org structure of the team there. And they had it broken down into, I believe it was squads of people that are, I don't know, less than 10 that work on a feature and they're multidisciplinary. They work on a specific feature. They are organized. Those squads are organized into things called tribes which are more sort of organized around a subject area. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, performance or maybe it's uh, streaming or whatever it is. And, and then you have these guilds that cut across, right? That say like all of the front end developers are part of the, are, are part of one guild and all the designers are part of another one. It felt like this sort of uh, kind of progressive or, or evolution of a matrixed model, which allowed maybe more flexibility and maybe a little more autonomy and stuff like that. Does that still exist at Spotify or, or have you, have you moved on from that? It's yeah, it, it, it still exists. And the guild is basically to, uh, find a way to cut across these different, uh, organizations or missions and collaborate. So you might have a guild, for example, around the iOS platform as, as one. Right. And so they all can meet and talk about that platform for whatever like shared goals they may have. The reason why I use the, the, the guild is because some, sometimes you get in trouble because we're kind of using it in a, a slightly different way. It's, it's useful. I found to use when introducing, um, I don't know, new processes and methodologies to translate it to the to familiar terms so that's what we're using it for and it's been it's been fairly useful to to um yeah to parallel uh, what we had already from the from the technical technical way there must be inherent in that some tension right this like what nah, i don't know if it's as dramatic as like where do my loyalties lie but yeah. at, at some point a designer is part of a product team and they work day to day on the features in that in that particular aspect of the product, but they are also part of a design team and the motivations, uh, and priorities of those two, uh, systems, I think can pull at one another. Yeah, right? absolutely. No, it's hard. Um, yeah, that's a real challenge. I mean, but what you're essentially doing is you're trying to highlight certain constraints and we, it's not just designers in those forums. You know, we have, we bring in, uh, you know, people from product to also get an idea of what might be coming up um, that could potentially conflict. So it's a proactive way because you start the conversation at the beginning for the most part and not at the end, where it's like, oh, well, we've built it now. We've got metrics that support this particular method. So hopefully it reduces the conflicts more than, you know, uh, that can get worse later on. And then, you know, if you don't get, get ahead of those, then you might make certain decisions later on that can impact the user negatively because you've already committed to it maybe. 
it's almost a shortcut to figuring out how companies work mm. is to is to look at where essentially like the loyalties of a practitioner really lie. Yeah. Um, you know, I spent a bunch bunch of years recently at Adobe and Adobe has this team that was was called when I was there it was called XD for experience design. Yeah. And it was big, right? A couple hundred people in a thirteen thousand person company. A couple hundred people that that um, were on this team and had an incredibly strong identity. And in fact, just uh, I'll put a link to this in the notes for this show. Just a couple of weeks ago, I saw on Behance, you know, the portfolio site yeah. where, where, where designers show off projects, the XD team at Adobe had rebranded itself and just calling itself Design Now as a sort of oh, wow. I don't know, evolution of of where we are in our industry and stuff like that, which is, I thought, all good. But it was literally like a whole brand exploration and a set of brand guidelines mm -hmm. for the team at Adobe, which to me represents as kind of as siloed as you could possibly get. Right to say that yeah, that's interesting. we are we are a group of designers. We're very proud of our craft and our work. Here is how we identify ourselves. And oh, by the way, we you know probably work on other products with other teams and stuff like that. Yeah, very very focused on the centralization of design, which to me is often at odds with the much more agile small team moving very fast, focused on a set of products that's very multidisciplinary and looking at the balance between I've always been on the other side of that less around the, the centralized design mm. and rather think about that as more of a peer group and then focused on like our core attention and I am part of the team that is building this set of features so it's different and I'm sure it works differently and better and worse at different companies and different even different problems that people are trying to solve but I find that very interesting yeah I think you you're, the, the point you made at the end is, is spot on though I think you know you often read and hear about certain ways that people are organized or processes and you go like oh wow it must be fantastic there or we should just copy that particular but you've got to recognize that there are pros and cons to different things but there's also timing in there so uh, even the way that we're organized and structured now maybe as we you know you grow a certain size maybe you need to evolve that it's nothing's fixed um, it's like, um, yeah, you need to keep keep changing that way of thinking and, and solving, making sure it works. So uh, you could. I, I, one thing I'm I'm learning is, you know, if a team of designers are all located in one in one place and they all sit together, then you may have less of a need for things like guidelines and, and so on because you have this hive mind for free because you sit together and you have coffee together or something. Right. But if you're located in different places, um, and if you're um, say fully you're distributed sitting with the different products and, and your tech peers and then you have all the context and you have a maybe larger influence then you need those kinds of tools you know it all depends on those things and then as you grow um, I think one of the dangers is also that you've also got to spend start to spend time with those designers that, as much as you do with your product and tech counterparts so that you can have some shared methods you know not just this is this thing around the guilds or you know guidelines and toolkits and Slack and so on will give you so much communication and tools, but you still need to start to spend time outside of maybe your your immediate product team and, and spend time with the other designers who may be working on completely different things just yeah. so you can create a consistent or a shared hive mind in another another fashion. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like now you've almost looped around in that one of these tribes that product teams uh, is actually their function is to work continuously on the design system that you've built. Right. So, so that it's not so much, you know, okay, we're inconsistent. We need to do this project and yeah. come up with a style guide. But instead, this is a, this is a core part of the product itself. It is in itself a product that we're going to continuously maintain and update and keep current and, and iterate and evolve. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think if you, I think there's one of two ways you could probably, you're either going to have designers, like I said before, like sit together or the design leadership spend a huge amount of time together to create this hive mind or shared and coordinated uh, experience. Or you're going to have a, a sort of a dedicated central group who are going to support all of the distributed team. I think engineering have often had this in different ways, maybe more on the back end, et cetera, uh, when they have that. And maybe design, you know, it's now catching up and starting to have these systems teams becoming more and more common um, to support all of the different kinds of activity. So it feels like it's a, it's a key, key requirement if you are going to have designers fully distributed. I read an interesting piece from, I don't remember who wrote it now, but uh, somebody at Salesforce. Um, and Salesforce yeah. has a really remarkable design system. Yeah, uh, that, the lightning system. Yeah, and, and they started talking about design system, systems ops. Yes. So, you know, like I've, I've always been a big fan with a lot of interest in DevOps, which mm. was this, this notion that like you don't separate out the engineers who write the code from the engineers that test and maintain the, the, the system. Right, you you merge that all together and you do it at the same time. So yeah. you get developers writing tests and code at the same time, and that everybody is responsible in production for their code that they have been writing. I love that idea, mm. um, and I've seen it in practice very effectively. Wow, applying that to a design system where it is like a functioning layer of the production environment that everybody is contributing to and keeping up to date and is responsible for. That to me sounds like a step towards this idea of making the right thing to do kind of the only possible thing to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's what it, it talks to making those habits easy to to adopt and, and stick with. So yeah, lots of, I, mean, I don't know, there's a lot of thinking around this. I love to see how that's all evolving and stuff like that. What do you think of the, some of the more like famously public design systems like Google's material design or what what Apple has been doing uh, since iOS 7 and, and things like that? Um, you think that's, they've got similar issues and challenges or, or is that just different because of the, the very, very public and distributed scope of what they do? Um, no, I, I would imagine they have lots of, I mean, it might be on a larger scale, but I think it's, you know, similar issues. They've got um, an ex ecosystem that they've got to get some structure around um, and they've put put a system in place. And I think the the great thing for, for many of many of us uh, with something like uh, with Google um, because it's known as a sort of a, a techie company. It's not like Apple, which you know everyone you know says obviously the design company. With Google investing in that, it's a great showcases to the industry just how important this kind of work is, and I'm sure makes the the path forward for others sort of advocating for it within their companies a lot easier if they can reference reference that. Um, especially then now something like Salesforce follows again, um, and then. Also, just sharing that knowledge, you know, I think both Salesforce and Google, sharing the way that they've structured that, articulating it, because often it's a lot of like just general best practices on how to design, but then they go very specific um, for their needs. Uh, I think that's super helpful. I think uh, for me, when I started first writing guidelines, it was more coming from uh, from books that I was reading. So like I mentioned before, like the, the pattern language book from Christopher Alexander, uh, what was the other modular design? Uh, Nathan Curtis. Nathan Curtis has written yep. a lot. I think he's on Medium now about this um, this methodologies, which has been great. And then writing books like the Elements of Style, just all about how do you structure this? Because it's quite hard. Um, not everybody finds it easy to like break a design apart into these different structures. So I think, you know, with the HIG guidelines from Apple and, and Material, I think that's it's uh, it's not a very accessible way. Maybe easier than just books. It's, that's been great, and I think. Um, lots of designers now have been, that's what I'm noticing when we, you know, we're interviewing hiring, et cetera, 
I've become more and more familiar with apps. You know, if you were more familiar with the web, it's a bit more accessible sometimes, the, the coding part, not the uh, advocating for coding or anything, but it does give you a bit of a shorthand and understand like, oh, there's a button and the structure and you think in terms of systems a little easier. So now you're thinking in apps, these these OS guidelines that they're sharing out, maybe the, f- the first instance that you start thinking about the language broken apart in such a, in a modular fashion. So I think that's wonderful, super helpful. Yeah, yeah, really is. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of, just so much thinking and, and code being written and designs being standardized and stuff like that. I've been actually really impressed to see how many companies actually make them public, you know, um, uh, which I think just uh, helps uh, evolve everybody's sense of this, the importance of this kind of stuff um, in general. You, have you guys done that or any plans to do that? Yeah, we are. Um, so we have an internal uh, set of guidelines now. Um, we've just, we're just finishing off sort of uh, the evolution of, sort of what we've learned. Um, so it should be towards, hopefully, the end of the year, we might we'd hopefully have it uh, public, at least a part of it. Um, so it would be for our partners, so all our partners can access uh, our guidelines, um, as well as just to share, uh, like, you know, the same way that others have. Uh, hopefully there's some some things there that we've learned. And, and we keep finding things, you know, we, you know, I've written this one article, there's other things that would be great to share. I mean, there's something very new that we're working on, which uh, I get super excited about where it's in, in our, in the, in the staff builds of our, say on our Android or iOS clients, we can actually have, we have internal tools for, you know, for UI now that we've just started working on. So you can overlay a grid. We can flag when you're using the wrong typeface or the wrong type definition uh, we can flag, you know, using the wrong colors or it's not accessible or, or something of those lines. Um, and then we've been talking about, you know, if we want to encourage uh, kind of good habits, you can almost have similar to what you have with Google and performance tools. We can give you a number. So yeah. you've scored 65 out of 100. That's, you know, it's a red mark. That's not doing so well. Uh, if you move it up a little bit and it's, you know, it's, it comes like gamifying a little bit. Maybe it's a bit too much. I don't know. We'll have to try it out and see. But it's coming up with these uh, reward methods of like the you know the best behavior, which ultimately is good for the user, you know, making it more accessible than other things. And and then you have a, a gate or a way of reviewing it, um, not just from technical standpoint, but from from a more of a UI uh, and accessibility uh, too. So uh, I get excited about about that actually. Um, and hopefully, if we if we find a way, we can also try and share that out to the community too. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That reminds me a lot of like years ago when I when I wrote HTML and then would have to pass it through a validator. Yeah, and exactly. I would get my list of errors back. And, yeah, uh, and I do actually. I remember. I, I think you're right about feeling like a game mm. of getting closer and closer to 100 yeah, percent yeah. valid, and then suddenly I'm there and everything is green and it feels really good. Yeah, so th- that's interesting. A programmatic way of of validating a design to see if it matches up with the design system and style guide and, and things like that. I'm surprised there's not more. Uh, that there hasn't been, you know, products in that space in a more abstract way that, you know, people could, I, know. I don't know, maybe it's an opportunity for somebody there. It's but. so powerful because you can, you basically given a metric that uh, people have to follow. So instead of an email saying, sorry, you haven't, you know, linked to, a, to, I don't know, the guidelines or something. Um, you haven't, you have immediately, you know, like, oh, sorry, you can't release this because you're failing here, here and here. And I, I'm, I believe that, you know, Google and Material, they've been investing in a lot of these review, review methods to achieve just that um, internally. So I think, yes, yeah, I think that's a great way forward, you know, to, uh, to scale the reviewing. I think um, 
that's one of the hardest things, right? Like, you're trying, how do you review all these different things going out? There's all the different experiments. Which one is it of the different A-B tests and so forth? So if you can have a way that people can self-review, um, I think that can help massively, actually. Yeah. Well, good. I look forward to seeing the guidelines when you when you uh, release them later this year. And yeah. appreciate you sort of sharing and, and kind of giving back to the community in, in that way. I think that's really cool. You, you know, you're building on so much knowledge that people have shared already. And I think it's, I think it's great. I mean, there's lots of good tools that seem to be coming out that hopefully there'll be more to, to, uh, to help others. It's been a great conversation. Uh, yeah, no, where can, let's see you, you are, uh, you're on Twitter at hello Stanley. That's right. Yeah. If you have questions, probably the, the best place is just uh, ping me on Twitter. Um, Oh, I should follow you on Spotify, see what you're listening to. Yeah, maybe not, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to a lot of Bob Dylan and uh, on, on repeat. Maybe that's a bit boring uh, after a while. <laughs> well, Stanley, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, really appreciate it. No, pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Fain. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentablefm. Thanks so much. Thanks.